to Shekayach label and very a bracha you should have a lot of atzlacha, zun, parnasa, nachas, chesidish nachas, continued chesidish nachas. Should be able to do this barachava more and more and more and more. And please God, this whole table will take the Yerushalayim with the Rebbe with Mashiach by the base of Migdosh. A lot of blessing to you and for doing what the Rebbe wants us to do is make hakel parties. Amen. Amen. Okay. Look, I'm gonna have to raise my voice over here. Yes. Ever since the creation of the world, there's been there's been something about gold. gold. The sparkle of gold is just uh, it has such an attraction magnetic and uh, it's always been a wonder in fact gold has always been a marshal of perfection when you want to describe a person you know he's gold she's gold you know it's always a marshal of perfection and the reason is because of all the metals the golden path Aristotle the Rambam the golden path right it doesn't corrode it doesn't rust and it's beautiful it sparkles it sparkles it is Value, it's, it's a little rare, right? And uh, where humanity has just been fascinated with gold. Now, this parsha gold plays a prominent role. Out of all the materials the Eden were requested to donate to the building of the Mishkan, gold was number one. Gold was the first material. The Medrash famously says, I don't have it on the paper, the Medrash famously says, really the world wasn't fitting to have gold. The Abishta created gold solely and with the sole purpose for the Mishkan, for the Beis Hamikdash. Mm. Once there's gold for there, the Abishta threw in a little extra, you know, people can enjoy it as well. By the way, the Rebbe once said by Fabrengen, that his Zayde, the Rebbe Zayde of Meir Shleim Meyanovsky. By the way, we're gonna have lots of stories tonight. Beautiful. I don't have too much on the papers. There's lots Beautiful. of lots of uh, there's gonna be lots of tidbits to in between the glue, the glue that that uh, puts everything together. The Rebbe once quoted by Fabrengen that his Zayde, his mother's father, the Meir Shleim Meyanovsky, was uh, from Nikolai of southern Ukraine, but he traveled all the way to Lubavitch in Russia. To spend time by the Reb Marash, and there were a group of young light, young married men who were doing the same. And when he came back to Ukraine to Nikolaev, so he told the people around him about the wealth of the Reb Marash. The Reb Marash was a wealthy person. Even before he became a Rebbe, he was a successful businessman. He was in stocks and this, that, and the other. He was he was quite wealthy, very wealthy. The Reb actually writes in the Rishimis that the Reb Marash won numerous lotteries. He and the Tzemach Sedek together, together they won one, and then on his own, the Reb Marash won quite a few lotteries. And lotteries. that's lotteries, yes, yes. Quite a few. Quite a few, a number, a number, a number. Yeah, well, he created the luck, perhaps. Or maybe, maybe he, he used it. alchemy, right. Possibly and rigged it? No. Well, listen, listen to the end of the story. Anyhow, the Reb Marash was a wealthy fellow even while he was a Rebbe. So the Rebbe Zayder of Meir Shleimer, who was 
spending some time as a young married man by the Reb Marash, he returns home to Nikolaev and he was telling somebody about the wealth of the Reb Marash. And this other guy couldn't handle it. He, he said, what? What does the Reb Marash need money for? Why does the tzaddik need riches? Give it to the poor. It doesn't make any sense. And Reb Meish Lema, the Reb Zayda, responded to this fellow, Petach, Petach, you fool. Farvemin and gold is gold and silver. Famir and Fadir. For who did God create gold and silver? For me and you. God created beauty for the righteous. That's what God created it for. So it belongs in the courts of the Rebbe. The Chiddush is that other people also can get their hands on it. And L'Chaira, that's that idea is mamish sourced in the Medrash that says about this week's Parsha, the world really shouldn't have had gold. But once the Abish to put it here, for his base Amikdash, for his Mishkan, then already, once it's here, it's here, people can enjoy it as well. So we begin with number one, the fascination of gold. And this is going to take us on quite an interesting journey. Lots of historical uh, facts, legends, mystery. We begin with number one. Number one is a Gemara. A Gemara in Yuma. And the Gemara speaks about a Kayan. Yuma, this is Dach Yurma Sechta. This is Yurma Sechta. And it speaks about the, when the Kayan Godel on Yom Kippur when he had to bring in the incense into the Kodesh Kadoshim, an incense was made up of, he needed a, a, a keili, a pot, he needed hot coals, and he needed spices. So where did he get the hot coals from? He got them from the outer Mizbeach. He went to the outer Mizbeach, and he would, uh, he used a golden shovel to get some really hot coals, and that shovel was actually the pan with which he entered into the Kodesh Kadoshim. So says the number one, The incense was brought every day of the year, twice a day. But it was brought in the Kodesh, not in the Kodesh Kodoshim, but in the golden little Mizbeach in the Kodesh. On Yom Kippur, there was also Keteris brought in the Kodesh Kodoshim. And the Gemara says, here's the difference. Every day, every day, the gold, the golden um, shovel that was used to get the coals off the Mizbeach was made out of yellow gold. Actually, the coin used to use a silver, a silver in order not to ruin the gold. He used to use a silver a shovel to get the coals and then Put it on pour there. them into a golden one. On Yom Kippur, we don't want it to be too many stages. What? Yorick is translated as yellow. Yellow and green are kind of two shades of a similar, you know, yellow becomes green. Right. The primary colors are yellow, blue, red, right? So this or blue into the yellow, you make green. Right, it refers to yellow gold, you're right. It's called Yorick, but the translation, what? What can I tell you? Everyone translated as yellow gold. Yellow gold gets a little, what is called it? Turned into green. Okay. All the translations say yellow gold. No, no, it, it, gold, when it gets a little or whatever. it just means yellow gold. The reason why it says Yorick is because on Yom Kippur it was made out of red gold. The Mishnah says every day, the Mishnah says every day it was yellow, it was Zahav Yorick, which we're translating as yellow, like the people before us have translated. But on Yom Kippur, the golden shovel was made out of red gold. Fine. Amar Avchista, Shiva Zahavim the seven types of gold. Zahav, first you have gold. Then the Zohav Toiv, good gold. 
Zohav Eifir, gold of Eifir. He'll explain what he'll explain what these things mean in just a moment. Zohav Mupaz, gold of Mupaz. Zohav Shachut, Zohav Sogur, Zohav Pavayim. He explains what these are. How do I know this Zohav and Zohav Tov, this regular gold and good gold? Dixiv, as the Pasuk says in the beginning of the Torah about a certain place, the gold of that place is good. What does that teach you? That there's regular gold and there's good gold. By saying that the gold there is good, that teaches you that there's two types of gold. Exactly. Different carrots, how pure it is. Zohav Oifir means the Asim Oifir comes from Oifir. Zohav Mupaz, Mupaz Shedoimalapod is similar to Paz. Paz is an old gem which some say it's pearl, some say it's still unidentified. But whatever the Paz is, might be similar to Topaz, Ichvesnish. Some translate it as pearls, is a white pearls, I don't know. But gold similar to pearl, to Paz. Number of words? Oh, yeah, 87, yeah, yeah. Zohav Shochut, it doesn't mean Shchite, it means Shenitve Kechut. You can, um, whew, Tevia, uh, so, what's another word, what's another word for so? Um, what's the? Thread. Yeah, well, Chut is a thread and Nitve is to? Spin. Spin, 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 maybe there's another word, anyhow. Right, you know that gold, you know, when gold you make thin plates, you can cut into thin strands and you can mamish, right, it can mamish be soft like a thread, if it's thin enough. Strands. Strands. Zohov Sogur, what does it mean, the gold that's closed? Mishosh and Niftach, when the store that sells this gold opens, Kola Hanuyas discards, all the other golden stores close their doors. There's a certain gold which just puts to shame all other gold. Then you have Zohar Parvayim. What's Zohar Parvayim? Shadoyme Ladam HaPorim. It's similar to the blood of cows. It's reddish gold. Now, the Rabbi son of Lunil was one of the great Rishonim in Lunil, that's in Provence, uh, in the 1100s. He tainas that the Gemara of Chist is counting gold in an ascending order from least precious to most precious. So the most precious is the reddish gold that's similar to the blood of a cow. On Yom Kippur, that's what was used. Why? Because when you bring it into the Kodesh Kedoshim, you know what else was brought into the Kodesh Kedoshim? The blood of a cow. The Kohen Gadol's cow, he brought the blood in. So, to, um, to connect. Stay color-coordinated. Right, exactly, you know. <laughs> so you have the reddish gold and the blood of the power. Yeah. Kodesh Kedoshim. What's that? The most inner chamber. Where the Oren is, yes. just the Ark. And the Kohen Gadol would enter Kodesh there once Kedoshim. a year. Translates to Holy of Holies. It's pretty holy. So to stay on color theme. Yeah. Red theme. So Ravashi Omar. Ravashi says, Chamishohein. No, there's really only five types of gold. There's really five. Zohav Oifir, Mupaz, Shachut, Sogar, and Parvayim that we mentioned. And each one has you know, the, the basic version, and then the Zohav Toy. And Tanya Nami Hochel, you have Bechol Yoim, every day, Hoyazava Yorik, when the Koyan would get the coals from the outer Mizbeach to bring the incense, the gold was yellowish. Vahayoim, but Yom Kippur's Adam, it's red. Vahayinu Zohav Parvayim, and this is the ultimate gold of Parvayim, which is called Parvayim. Parvayim is actually the name of a place. But it's also called parvayim because parim cows. It's similar to the dam hapar. 
So we're saying that the ultimate gold is reddish gold. Okay. So this is a Gemara that speaks about different levels and layers of the you know, of gold. Fine. It seems pretty innocent. We go to number two. Number two is a medrash in Shira Shinim Rabba. And the medrash there also lists as many types of gold. And it says, Zav Mezukok. We're in number two now. What's clear gold? Purified gold? Dvei Rab Yanai or Dvei Rab Yudin Bereb Shimon. There were two yeshivas that debated it. Dvei Rab Yanai say, Shemechas Chinoisa, you cut it, Kizesim into olive sized pieces. Umachilin Oisa Lene'imis, you give it to ostriches. Apparently, if you feed it to an ostrich, a small piece the size of an olive, the ostrich will it'll, um, will uh, send it out from the backside, but much clearer than when it came in. The heat and things inside, the ostrich cleanses, cleanses the gold. It will exit the ostrich purified. The other yeshiva says, the yeshiva of Rab Yudan, the son of Rab Shimon, if you put the gold in fertilizer, in manure, for seven years, the yoytse mezukuk, it goes out clean. Zahav parvayim. Now what's zahav parvayim? So the, so the medrash says, machlekes, reish lakish amar odoim, it's red, doim aladam apar. This is what we know already from the Gemara. Zahav parvayim is red. Parvayim comes from the word par is a cow, the blood of a cow. The yesh omen, some say sha'oyse peris. Zahav parvayim can actually expand. It can grow, and this is obviously is connected to alchemy, as we'll see. Right? Does it say grow? Yeah. This week's part. Okay. I didn't. I didn't manage to check up this way. It brings this whole thing as well. This whole thing. No, this thing we're going to see over here about shloima. Base hamikdash boy When shloima built the base hamikdash. He designed and etched many images of trees out of gold. When the trees in the field produce fruit, the golden trees in the house produce fruit. And then the fruit would fall off, the golden fruit. And then they would collect it, the kainim, yeah, yeah, the kainim. They were, they were well off. They were busy collecting he golden apples. This, so this is not their fine. So this is only kid. found here in Shira Shinim Rabbah. Nah, they didn't keep it for themselves. They donated it to help uh, fix the base of Mikdash. When the infamous King Menashe, towards the end of the first base of Mikdash, placed an idol in the Hechel, all those trees dried out. The whole miracle was over. This is what it says in Nachum. The flowers of the Lavon, which refers to the base Hamikdash, Umlal has become weak, has withered. In the future, it's coming back. These trees are coming back. God will return. It says in Yeshayah, it will grow, it will rejoice, rejoicing and song. Amen. The goose that lays golden egg. So, so, uh, so here's the deal. A bit of background. We know generally there are seven different types of wisdoms. There's mathematics, there's medicine, there's chokhmas hateva, science, physics, the same thing. 
There's astronomy. Astrology is, uh, is not necessarily separate from astronomy. Astrology is the meaning behind the movements. Astronomy is the physical movements of the heavenly bodies. And astrology, is there any significance behind that? The Rambam famously credits no meaning to astrology. He believes it's all hocus pocus and bobamysis. And interestingly, the Ibn Ezra, who lived the same time as the Rambam, who was also a major rationalist, the Ibn Ezra is, is infamous, is notorious that in his commentary on Tanakh, he often does away with Gemara and Medrash to give a rationalist approach. Yet he was a major believer in astrology. He wrote books on it. So you have astronomy. Music, music's another one of the seven wisdoms. Einstein famously said, Where's Yankee? Einstein said that if he wouldn't be a physicist, he would have become a musician. Shh. Yeah, the beauty of music. The Friedrich Rebbe actually writes in one of his uh, Rishimas, his diaries, that the Vilna Gaon had mastered all seven wisdoms and that there was a, he had a particular favor towards Chachmas Hanagina of music. So, what about music that's wisdom? Sorry? Seven kinds of wisdom. Seven kinds of wisdom. Now, what exactly the. Correct. Now, then you have Chochmas HaToyre. When we speak about Torah, we usually refer to Nigla. When it comes to Torah, the, one of the biggest mitzvahs is to learn Torah. Even bigger than the mitzvah of learning Torah is the mitzvah of knowledge of Torah. The Altareb in Hilchus Torah describes the greatest mitzvah above learning is the knowledge of Torah. Now what do you have to know? You have to know Tanakh, you have to know Halacha, and you have to know the reasons behind the Halachas. Nigla, that's the mitzvah of knowledge. And that's really, that's like the body, that's the goof of Torah. But then there's the mystery, the esoteric dimension of Torah. And this really divides into two. What's known as Maisa Bereshis, what's known as Maisa Merkava. Maisa Merkava is a chariot that Yechezkel saw. And that's what is known as Kabbalah. The spiritual worlds, the Malachim, the Spheris, the Seder, Hishtalshlis, all the worlds the Ebishter created and studying the Abish himself, Kabbalah. But then there's Maisa Bereshis. In Masech Chagiga, the Gemara speaks about these two wisdoms, Maisa Merkava, studying Kabbalah, and Maisa Bereshis. Maisa Bereshis is to learn about the secret of creation, of this physical world. You're not learning about the world of Atzillus, it's about Olam HaAsiyah, but it's about the secrets behind creation, the secrets behind physics, the Ramban in his commentary in the beginning of Chumash says that the Torah doesn't write how the Ebishter created the world at all. It just gives a couple fun facts. You know, a couple days, this day God did this, this day God did this. A couple fun facts, a couple tidbits. But the secrets of how the Ebishter did it, the Ramban says, were only passed on to select individuals in every generation. Teacher to student to student. And it was out of a whole generation, only a select few were privy. And this is known as Maisa Bereshis. Yeah, also it's part of that. Luchaira, that is part of Maisa Merkava. The Asar, the, the Maisa Bereshis is more passionate about how, you know, the rule, the, the, what's behind physics, about what's the, the essence of nature. You're right, that to some degree, my Siberatius leads you 
to Maisa Merkava. And that's how we're going to see that alchemy ultimately leads you to Kabbalah, to Kabbalah as we're going to see. Generally speaking, what? It's a science, it's a, it's the essence behind the science. Is it the, it's the dialogue? No, it's, it's Be'etzim natural. Is it the dialogue? Possibly. Yeah. So there, there, is a, there, there is a piece, a letter about alchemy, which is a machlekis if the Rambam wrote or not, but yeah. Let's assume for now, and it's safe to assume, Maisa Beratius is pretty much alchemy, and Maisa Merkava, with that we know, is Kabbalah. Now, what exactly, so what, what are the beliefs of alchemy? So, in a nutshell, it's like this. The alchemists believed that everything in life grows, not just people, not just animals, but everything, even doimim, uh, metals grow. And in alchemy, there were seven general metals. There was gold, silver, copper, um, lead, tin, iron, and of course, mercury. Mercury is very important in alchemy. And sulfur as well is a very important ingredient. Gophnis. Is that a That the metals grow? We, we're we're, we're going to see what Yiddishkeit says about alchemy. What are we going to see? So this, these seven metals, in old alchemic books, it says that these seven metals correspond to the seven stars. The seven stars are in Torah called the Shiva Koichvei Leches. Anyhow, the seven stars that go, they are the Sun, the Moon, and Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And each one corresponds to one of these metals. Of course, Mercury corresponds to Mercury, seven to seven. What about the other planets? The, what? They're not, just like they threw off Pluto, Pluto was thrown off. Nah. Out? With a name like that, <laughs> huh? can't, can't, can't include it into a serious conversation. My dope bear yeah. Have your pad. What up, pad now? <laughs> there was. Hey, Mendel really likes Uranus. I don't know. It was your favorite planet, wasn't it? What's the pad? So the anyhow, the alchemists believed <laughs> that under the ground everything grows. Just like if you put a seed in the ground, a tree will grow and fruits will grow. So too the metals grow. And in the ground, in the ground, metals which are uh, subpar and have a moon unclean, unpurified, in the right, uh, um, in the right atmosphere, become purified and can reach silver and can even reach gold. And the alchemists felt that whatever Mother Nature does underground, they could do in their laboratory. They felt in their laboratory also, if they have lead or they have one of those metals, they can do what happens underground and bring each of these metals to their shlemus, which is that they should reach gold. But how can they do that? They must have some um, element with which to transmutate or to transform the basic metals into gold. Synthetic diamonds. So that, right, right. Yeah, yes, that's rock, right. No, the pressure, I know. They, diamonds. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's becoming a market. Right, yeah, yeah. The balance sheet is down. So there was a fellow named Zosimos. Zosimos lives in Egypt in, around, in the in second century or third century, in the end of the times of the Tanoim. And he was a major alchemist. And he says a number of things. 
A, he says that the Chochmah of alchemy is found by the Yidin. This is what he writes. Zosimos. He was an alchemist 2,000 years ago almost. No, he was a Goy, Egyptian Goy. He says that the truth of alchemy is found by the Yidin. And another thing he says is that what is the agent, what is the element with which you can make these base metals reach their shlemus? He calls it the philosopher's stone. Okay, so that's where the idea comes from. It's not a stone, it's not a rock. The Chidah in one place actually says it's a leaf, it's a herb, a special herb. herb. But uh, many believed, many alchemists believed it was a, a mercury, something with mercury and sulfur and some other magical ingredients. But when you have this agent, and a little bit of this agent can transmutate, transform uh, basic metals to reach their perfection of gold. And it wasn't just metals, it was everything in life. Particularly health and everlasting life. They felt that if anybody would come in contact with this philosopher's stone, you would be healed from all ailments and your life will be prolonged, perhaps to the point you could live forever. There's a Gemara in Baba Basra. I didn't manage to put it on the sheet, but it says that Avraham Avinu had a rock that he used to wear around his neck as a necklace, and anyone that would see it would be healed instantaneously. It's a clear Gemara. It's a clear Gemara. Okay, the Rajbah, some of Farshim say it's not literal, it's just a muscle, but if you take the Gemara literally, what in the world is the Gemara referring to? It's exactly the idea of the philosopher's stone. And we'll see more about this soon. So that's what Zosimo says. He says the truth of alchemy is by the Eden, and he describes this philosopher's stone. Did he also talk about the elders of Zion or not? I haven't read all of his works. Could be in some place he does. Protocol. You're not familiar with the protocol. No. It's interesting because alchemy is Egyptian. Right, right. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. What does alchemy mean? So, chem in Egyptian apparently refers to the mud of the Nile. Chem from Chum, where the Egyptians were descended from Chum. Oh, so it's that, that I never heard. Yeah, al chem means El is God, and Chem is the. Yes, that's so, is that yeah. somewhere? Yeah. I've, I've seen many Pshatim in alchemy, I haven't seen that. Very nice, beautiful. Apparently, in, in Egyptian, Chem refers to the mud of the Nile. And what the alchemists were saying is we can do in our laboratory the same thing that the soil does. Just like the soil can bring seeds to a tree, to fruit, and also the metals to their perfection, we can do the same thing with our minerals and chemicals in the laboratory. So either way, this is the famous Zosimos. He said it's all found by the Eden, and he speaks about this philosopher's stone. Like he said, apparently this began by the Egyptians. But what Zosimos is saying is, yeah, it started by the Egyptians, but then it landed in the hand of the Jews. So Zosimos is saying, if you want to get the secrets today, you've got to go to the Yidin, to the Tanoim, to the great Tanoim. That's, he lived late Tanoim, early, early Amoroim, Rav and Shmuel. It's almost like he's saying, you've got to go to the great Jewish rabbis, the Jewish mystics, to get to the secrets. Presently, but originally, Taka came from the Egyptians, yeah, originally. So Zosimos though was in Alexandria, in Egypt, in the, in the, the second century, third century. The Chachma, whatever was happened by the Eden, we don't know exactly, but it was definitely in Egypt. 
A couple hundred years ago, the Muslims, Muhammad, his armies, they conquer Egypt in the 7th century or 6th, 7th, 7th century. And when they take over Egypt, the Arabs, they completely acquire and take over the wisdom of alchemy. And it became an Arabic wisdom. And they fine-tuned it and they worked on it for many, many years. And through Spain. The Christians started getting their hands on it in the medieval times, in the 11th century, 12th century, but it was banned. It was officially banned by the Pope. The churches banned it because they felt, first of all, sulfur. In Christianity, they link Gothic sulfur with the Sotan, and anyone that's dabbling with uh, sulfur will be accused of summoning the Satan and will be killed as a witch. And many alchemists were murdered by the church they were killed because they were accused to be witches because there was sulfur going there was gophers sulfur going on in their laboratories so but so it was with lots of danger but nonetheless the christians were learning it from the arabs fine this continues zosimus was egyptian egyptian in alexandria in egypt in the second or third century Probably it was Greek. It's Greek Egyptian. Perhaps. Till we reach our next story. And the next story takes us to the end of the 1300s. And this is one of the greatest stories in alchemy. There was a fellow by the name of Nicolas Flamel. And he lived in France, he lived in Paris. I was t talking to this to the Bochum, they said they all know about him from, from Harry Potter. I said, listen, I don't know, oh, really? you know, I, I wasn't able to get any of those sources yeah, of any uh, <laughs> excerpts of Harry Potter on the sheet. So, uh, but what we do know is like this, he definitely existed, he lived in Paris, and he was a writer, he had a beautiful handwriting, and he would copy manuscripts, he made a meager living. Somehow, he and his wife became stupendously rich. figured it out before he disappeared it's recorded in French documents that he donated over 10 schools orphanages cloisters meaning tens and tens of millions of dollars or more and there's a no one had a good explanation of how he had that money if he was just a scribe about he he, disis he disappears or dies in the, about 1410. 200 years later, manuscripts are printed, which allegedly were his manuscripts, but they lay unpublished, and in the early 1600s they were published. And they're attributed to him, those that printed it said they're mamish his, and, it's, and in it he writes the following. What's written is like this. He got hold of an alchemist manuscript, which wasn't that long, but was an impossible read. He couldn't understand the language, let alone the pictures. It's well known that the alchemists would write their secrets in very bizarre pictures. The pictures of alchemy are famous till today, and all the scholars are trying to decipher what they mean and da da da, -da because the Chachomim, the few alchemists that knew what they were doing, they they hid it in, in such a way no one could no one could figure it out. You know, the Arizal in one place says 
that Abshimon Bar Yechai was not the greatest Kabbalist amongst the Tanoim. It's a clear Arizal. He says Abshimon Bar Yechai was not the greatest Kabbalist of the Tanoim, but he had a magical skill that no one else had. He could take the deepest Sinyonim of Kabbalah and camouflage them in a sentence that unless you had the right glasses, you would completely miss it. So for those that are in, they'll be able to snuff out and see the depth of everything that's in his words. But for the uninitiated, you'll see nothing. And only Rashbi had that, uh, you know, that was able to pull off that magic trick. That's what Darizal says. And as the alchemists were famous of doing this, of putting whatever secrets they had into these pictures. Nicholas Flamel spent years on this treatise. He couldn't figure it out. Until in the end of the 1300s, he decided he's going to travel. And he went from France to Spain. And he asked different Chachomim to, to explain. He didn't get any answers. On his way back to France, he bumped into an old Yid with a Langa Weiss aboard. And the old Yid sees the Kuntras, this little pamphlet. And he says, you know what this is? This is, look at number seven. The book of the sacred magic of, Abra of Abramelin the mage. What is that? So you have to know the following story. Around the same time, there was a Jew in Worms by the name of Avroham. Avroham of Worms, who was a Yid. This would be the end, the end of the Baalei Taisus, the end of the 1300s. This guy was a big scholar, but he was thirsty for Pnimi Senyonim, for Kabbalah. Where's what? Where's Worms is in Germany. He traveled all the way from Worms to Egypt. Very far. Very far. All the way across the Mediterranean, comes to Egypt. And he writes that I was near the Nile, and there was a little hill. On top of the hill was a little hut. And in the little hut, there was an old little man. His name was Abramelin. His name probably was Ibrahim, you know, but the, like the Avremel version in the, you know, in the Egyptian world, Abramelin. And this guy was an old sage. And he tells Avram of Worms that I can teach you the deepest secrets of magic and of apparently Kabbalah type of secrets. This Egyptian goy was a goy, but he was a big maimon in, in Hashem Echad. And Fakert, he told Avram of Worms, you may be a Jew, but how committed are you to God? He said, I can't teach you right now. First, he charged him an, uh, an, an enormous amount of money. That was all the money Avram had with him. He gave him every penny. Abramlin took the money right away. He went to the nearby city. He gave every penny to the poor that lived there. He came back. He had a few discussions with Avram of Worms, and he said, you know what, I feel that you're ready, the time is ripe. And he taught him all the secrets that he knew, of the secrets of creation, alchemic secrets, you know, whatever it was, lots of magic and things like that. And this Avram of Worms put it into a book, and the book was translated, this is the English version of the book, the book of the sacred magic of Abramel and the mage. Lots of magic squares and different types of, you know, whatever these things are. So going back to Nicholas Flamel, Nicholas Flamel, we said, had this book, didn't know what it was, couldn't figure out Pshat. And he meets this old Jew who tells him, ah, this is the book written by Avram of Worms. And the old Jew explains it to Nicholas of Flamel, explains to him the whole, the whole thing. Nicholas Flamel comes back to Paris and he gets involved in alchemy because he knew now what the, he knew 
apparently he knew how to make the Philosopher's Stone and allegedly he turned many base metals into gold and that's how he had stupendous wealth even though he was Maybe just described. He's still alive right now, he disappeared. Ah, <laughs> you're not the only one to say that. He made his own matseva. He designed and built it himself. Some allege that he himself planted in the cemetery to cover up his own disappearance. In the early 1400s, he disappears. In the 1800s, somebody appears, somebody appears in Paris, <clears throat> walks around the whole city telling everyone, I'm Nicolas Flamel, and I'm ready to, to spill the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone. Unfortunately, no one took him yeah. seriously. They all thought he was a Meshuggah, right? And that was the end of that. <clears throat> but... Probably was Probably was, yeah. <clears throat> Anyhow, so from that point and on, since the early 1600s, Nicholas Flamel became Mamish a hero. Mamish a hero in alchemy. He lived 200 years before then, but the story was an him in the early 1600s. Now... Can you say what an alchemist was? To reach the secrets of every, to bring every item in creation, no, to bring every item of creation to its perfection, no, to its perfection, to purify everything that God created. It's almost like the Medrash says the Abishta created the world lasos. Hashem created Ashabara Kim lasos to do. The Medrash says lasakin it means the Abishta created, and we have to fix it. The alchemists believe that everything in creation needs to be perfected. You can only perfect something if you know the essence of the item and you bring it to its perfection. The alchemists are really looking for the secret of life. There was an old, the way it was worded by somebody was that the alchemists seemed to be looking for gold. In truth, they were looking for God. Gold or God, what is the quest of the alchemists? Superficially, it's gold, but that's just one expression of their quest. It's really looking for the truth behind nature. Now, there's an internal alchemy for finding the spirit. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Right. Well, then you have the, the psychiatrist as well. You have Sigmund Freud student um, Carl Jung. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He took it exactly. Anyhow, it gets more exciting. So during the 12th century, the 13th century, the Christians and the Pope, the churches outlawed alchemy. It was forbidden. And if you, if you were considered to be a machasha for witch practicing magic, you would be killed. It was more the Arabs that were involved in it than the Christians until the Renaissance movement began, particularly in Italy in the 1400s. The Renaissance, you have like what's known as the Dark Ages, the medieval times and the, the Renaissance. Really what the Renaissance was, was uh, it was a tenu of apicursus. It was let's throw the yoke of religion off us. Let's make man the pinnacle, the center of creation. Let man use his mind to come up with the greatest inventions and the greatest understanding. You know, and that's it. They kind of threw off the yoke of the, the church to some degree. And because of that one... I'm not so sure. I, I don't know if they threw off the yoke of, like, they were very degree. religious back then. They just threw off the yoke of, like, that, because the church, as proven, was very corrupt. So they thought religious structures... Well, ma many things that the church had banned now became mutter. It was, and alchemy was one of them. And alchemy became very big in the 1400s and the 1500s. And that's when many Yidin got involved in it. We're going to see some of the greatest Yidin of the times were big alchemists. 
before then, the Yidin that were living in, the Baalei Teisus that were in Christian countries, if the Christians themselves weren't allowed to do it, you're not going to find the Baalei Teisus involved in alchemy. I'll tell you that Rabbeinu Tam, though, had a special favor for gold. Rabbeinu Tam was a very wealthy man. He was a banker, a very rich man. In fact, during the Second Crusade in 1147, the Goyim, they came to Rabbeinu Tam, they said, you're the wealthy Rabbeinu Tam, you're the rabbi of the Jews. They, they tried to kill him, they, they wounded his head, fire, a whole story about Rabbeinu Tam survived. Yeah. But we know that Rabbeinu Tam, if when he was learning something, it was, it was eluding him and there was confusion, he would put a pile of gold in front of him. Yeah, Rabbeinu Tam would get a pile of gold in front of him and it would, um, it, would, it would lift up, lift up his soul and his heart, put him in a better mood. Rabbein Atam, the greatest of the Rishonim. Wow. You know, a brain that we can't imagine. A holy Jew. You know, the leader of the Eden. And yet, when he was downcast, the gold. You know, from his own the safe downstairs. You know, he's a wealthy... His that's, own gold would put him... And what... Counting his... No, so the, obviously the Vod wasn't his counting his money. It was the gold itself. It was the gold itself. And I think that's the Vod to the Medrash that says gold was created for the Beis Hamikdash. Gold is really a holy substance. The world really wasn't worthy for gold. It was created for the Beis Hamikdash. Okay, then Hashem made a bit extra. Makes sense, Rabbeinu Tam. When he saw, when Rabbeinu Tam saw gold, he, he didn't saw see the gold, he didn't the see the gold that we see. He saw gold as takad, you know, something. Anyhow, but uh, the Rishonim that lived in Christian countries during the medieval times couldn't really get their hands dirty in alchemy. Those that were, you know, that's why the Savrom of Worms had to travel to, to Egypt. <clears throat> But once the Renaissance movement began, things changed drastically. And in the 1400s, there was... There was a Goyish fellow. I always forget his name. His first name was Pico. Pico della... Let's see if I have... I, 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 della Mirandola. Mirandola was his last name. Pico della Mirandola. He Poor died guy. young. He died young. <laughs> what? Pico della Mirandola. He lived in Italy. He died at 30 years old. So, nevertheless, he's very famous. He was an incredible scholar, but he was a guy by the by the, but he was a big alchemist. What's important is he was a student of two of very important Yidden that lived at the time in Italy. One of them was Eliohu del Medigo. You have to. Pardon me for all the names I'm throwing out, but uh, there was a Yid at the time by the name of Eliohu del Medigo. We're talking now the end of the 1400s. Pico was a guy, but this is very important. Eliohu del Medigo lived in Padua. Del Medigo is medic, he was a doctor. He was a great philosopher. He was the first one to openly criticize the Zoyer, and he wrote a book called Bechinas Hadas where he, you know, he uh, delegitimizes both the Zoyer and Kabbalah. The Tzemach Tzedek, on his table, he was caught having the Sefer, Bechinus Hadas, on his table. He was studying the Sefer. But the Sefer was written by Afrum Jew Eliyod del Medigo, criticizing Kabbalah, the Zoyer, but the Tzemach Tzedek had the Sefer, he learned the Sefer. Sorry, I'm this Elio no del Medigo was a professor in Padua, in the great University of Padua. 
he was a he criticized or critique against Kabbalah, but he was a teacher of this Pico della what's it, uh, Mira, Mirandola. No, Mirandola was the guy. Was the guy. This guy studied under this Jewish professor, Eliyahu del Medigo. Eliyahu del Medigo taught him Hebrew. He taught him Aramaic. He taught him Arabic. And here's the clincher. He translated Kabbalistic Sfarim, although he was an antagonist against Kabbalah, this Eliyahu del Medigo. He took Kabbalist, Kabbalistic Sfarim, in particular the Rikanti, the Rikanti, the Pirish Rikanti, because he's from Italy, on Chumash. He translated into Latin for, for this Pico to study. And this Pico was a great Talmud of Eliyahu del Medigo. Then this Pico afterwards studied under another very important Jewish sage by the name of Yochanan Alemano. Not so much is known about him. Yochanan Alemano is at the end of the 1400s. Yochanan Alemano was a major mystic, a Kabbalist, and hugely into magic. Not into practicing magic, into studying magic, alchemy, astrology, Kabbalah, everything that you know, everything that's behind what meets the eye. And this Yochanan wrote many Sfarim, some of them we have in print. And he writes a lot about alchemy. He was a believer in alchemy. And this Pico fellow studied under this Yochanan Alamano as well. So this Pico, who himself by the Goyesha world was one of the big alchemists, his Rebbe's were two Yidin. One of them was Eliyahu del Medigo, who gave him the in into Hebrew, into Aramaic, to Arabic, and translated into Latin for him, Kabbalistic works. And then he studied more Kabbalah and magic and alchemy under this Yochanan Alamano, who was this big, uh, big guy into magic. Obviously, a from Yid and everything. But here's the clincher. This Pico felt that alchemy and Kabbalah go hand in hand. They're both discussing the secrets of creation. It's like Maisa Bereshis and Maisa Merkava lead one in. You really want to know the essence of creation, you have to know about spirituality, right? The atom is not the essence of creation. If you want to know what's behind the atom, what's behind the protons, neutrons, what's, what's deeper than that, it's not about what's smaller. There's a whole new dimension, the dimension um, of isn't spirituality. That to what you were saying uh, a few classes ago, like what Plato was saying? You should know that this Jochen Alamana was a big Platonist versus our. Right, yeah, that's correct. Bechlau, we mentioned that that year as well, that the Kabbalists, the Mukobolim in general, favored Plato over Aristotle. And we saw that Amor writes that Plato was Makabal Chachma from Yiddish Chachamim. And anyhow, what? What? No, that was Aristotle. Aristotle was Megayer, according to those. No, Socrates was killed. No, but he got it from Jewish stuff and then he talked to Plato. So, but then we saw that Plato met up with Yirmiya. I thought it was Aristotle. The Ramah the Ra, the says, you want to know the words of the Ramah? The Ramah says in Torah Sa'ila like this. We have a tradition. Socrates was Makabal from Achitoifel. Although they lived 400 years from each other, it doesn't mean, it means the wisdom of Achitoifel somehow trickled down to Plato, uh, to Socrates. And Plato kibbal min Hanavim from the prophets, he says. And we discussed the story that Plato met up with Yirmiya in Egypt. Anyhow. And Aristotle was a different story. When Alexander the Great conquered Eretz Yisrael, he found Shloimeh's library, which had many manuscripts that Shloimeh wrote in addition to Mishlei, Shirashirim, and Kohelis. And 
Alexander the Great gave Aristotle rights to the library. Aristotle went to the library and anything good that he found, he uh, plagiarized and wrote in his own name. So the Rambam says that the Aristotelian physics comes from the Jews originally. Yep. Yep. Right. In the, although there are there are records that the Rambam at the end of his life had charotter for many of the, the Aristotelian beliefs that he spoke uh, about. Not not Real letters, Rav Kapak says. Okay. Uh, and wasn't Sadiqain also like? Uh, these are these are things that were these are. The there are Mukubolim that write about this three hundred years before Kapak that the Rambam had Harota from many of these books. Yeah. To help. So, so I know. In other words, these are big Kabbalists, and uh, right. anyhow. But either way, either way, back to our discussion over here. It's getting late. We're running out of time to read through the sources, but it doesn't matter. So uh, it's all that. Oh, so oh, so so what happened was this Pico della Morindara. Mor- Mor- Ugh, I can never remember the last name. What this Pico made a huge studium is the Christian Kabbalists. The in the end of the 1400s, throughout the 1500s there was a major movement known as the Christian Kabbalists. And the reason they were so into Kabbalah was because since with the Renaissance, alchemy came into the light, and it became widespread that the secrets of alchemy can only be understood with the secrets of Kabbalah. And that was what this Pico pushed, because he studied both alchemy and Kabbalah under this Mordechai, under this... um, this Yechanan, this Yechanan Alemano fellow. And this Yechanan Alemano fellow. The new Christians allowed it. What? I'm saying these Christians allowed it. Yeah, in the Renaissance, things became much more uh, mutter. Everything right. permitted, life was looser, looser. You know, people were into to wisdom and uh, instead of being far fetched, be open minded, be a bit so bright. So the movement of the Kabbalistic, the Christian Kabbalists began. And the funniest thing is it began by who? Pico first studied under Elio del Medigo, who was the, big, the first major criticizer of the Zoya and Kabbalah. But through him translating Kabbalistic texts for this Pico, his student, he did as a personal favor. Through that, he actually brought Kabbalah to the Christians. How ironic is that? He felt the Yidin shouldn't learn Kabbalah, and through him actually, you see, that's what happens, you know? It's like Shoal was said. Shoal didn't have mercy so when it came to the... Aristotle, it's actually very good because they're learning Torah. It's all from Shlema. No, no not, not everything. Rama. Apparently not everything. Apparently, uh, apparently the Mukubalim say some things where he plagiarized from Shlema and many things he broke away from Plato and wrote on his own. Some Mukubalim say anything good you find in Aristotle is what he stole from Shlema. So the rest of it he came up on his own well, and it's, uh, like it's inaccurate. Plato. That's true, also true. Anyhow, but let's get back to let's get back to the thing. Whew! You just saying a story. Yeah, too many stories. No, you're jumping. So this takes us into the 1500s. In the 1500s, almost every king and prince in Europe needed to have an alchemy in his court, because if not, Hatzke felt he was lacking. You don't have an alchemist. King Wasn't Rudolf. It to verify that the gold was really gold. It was more about that. No, it was about enhancing the king to create gold. It was to create gold, create and riches. And then gold becomes worthless. Though everybody's creating gold. Not everybody. There was uh, a no. Say uh, you do a little bit, a little bit. You know, 
you know, if, if a guy if makes... If were killed, the Chavis Lubavitch talks about it. Right, well, right. We, we, we have that if right. If you found out that you did it, yeah, because exactly. you're, you're falsifying right, it. Right, right. Negative Fraud. thing. Fraud. So it's the, like counterfeit money. Right. So in the 1500s... There, they're saying it's a lab diamond. We come to a few fellows that were majorly involved in alchemy. And one of them is Reb Chaim Vital. Reb Chaim Vital arrives, he learns by the Chaim Vital was about 27 years old when he began to learn from Narizal. His whole learning from Narizal was about a year and a half, two years. Narizal only spent about two and a half years in Svas, and the first six months Chaim Vital wasn't even there. He finally comes, he only spends about two years with the Arizal. The Arizal, when he first saw Chaim Vital, he says, Reb Chaim, I see on your forehead, I see the Pasuk, You're busy making calculations of how to manipulate gold, silver, and copper, which is a Pasuk about Betzalel in relation to building the Mishkan. It says about Betzalel, who was chosen to work with all the metals, he knew how to make these calculations. And many said, you know what that means? That's the secret of alchemy. That's the secret of alchemy. Reb Chaim Vital writes in his Sefer, Hachaziyanus, one of the very interesting works he wrote about his own life, that Itaka had Kachzich in alchemy for a couple years before I came to the Arizal. The Arizal saw me, he saw it written on my forehead. He saw the Pasuk. And Chaim Vital describes how the seven metals don't only correspond to the seven stars from the sun till Saturn, but also the seven spheres. Each metal corresponds to another sphere, and that's where it gets its highest from. And just like the spheres can be mashpia into each other, the different um, metals can grow and can mature and can mashpia one to another. And this is really the secret of life. You have to go into the Kabbalah. Yeah, but the spheres can't combine. Hiskalulus, Hiskalulus or Svidus, each one is made up of the other Svida. The whole Svidus Aimer is about it. Yeah, I know, metals can't I can make an alloy, Gvuda Shebechesed, yeah, these things, they, they, they. But just like it could mashpia into another one, so too the metals, Pasha, can merge, can even transform into another. So the Chaim Vital was major in this, and he wrote a few Svodim about alchemy. Sefer Hapu'ulus, there's no question, he was big into it. And he actually seems to write in one place that he actually was succeeded in turning some of the metals into gold. He writes that. Chaim Vital wrote that. That's what's mashma. Because they were all poor. Chaim Vital was poor. We don't know. He he, he lives in, uh, many years he lives in Syria, in Damascus. He had a yeshiva, maybe he supported the Bokram. Who knows how much he turned into gold. He's, that, that was just and another he expression. He wasn't metal. looking the to French make gold. French guy makes sense. If he did it, he had all his... Exactly. Uh, he was... What? Maybe a different motivation. Same thing. It doesn't make sense. Shleiman Malach would have done it. Like, there are records that Shleiman did it. Many times... See, this is what happened. When the Christians got... When the Christians became very involved in alchemy, they turned to, Na, to Tanakh and they said, everything you find in Tanakh is allusions to alchemy. Look, for example, look in, look in number four on, this, on the sheet over here. Number four is a pasuk in Parshas Vayishlach. Vayomas Baal Chonon ben Achber. Chonon ben Achber dies. Vayimlech Tacht of Hadar. Hadar rules underneath him from the city of Pau. The name of his wife is Mehei Tavel. Bas Matre, the daughter of Matre. Bas Mezohov, the daughter of Mezohov. 
The Ibn Ezra says underneath, Mezov Kachmoy, the Zayda's name was Mezov. The Hagon Omar, Reb Sadigon says, Sayyrif Sov, he uh, used to uh, form gold. Achedim Omru, others say, it's a rem as it's a hint, Laoisim Zov Menachoshes, to those that make gold from copper. So the Ibn Ezra was in the 1100s, born in the 1000s, but passes away in the 1100s, is quoting. Now he starts off in Spain, in the, in the land of the Arabs, but then he doesn't believe in it. He, he doesn't believe in alchemy. He doesn't believe in it. But he's saying that people in his time said that's Satan the Apostle. What, what, what is this from? What's the source? Vayishlach, Pashas Vayishlach at the end. Yeah, he doesn't, but he's saying that people say in his time, the thousand years ago, people were pointing to this Pasuk and Chumash. That's what he says. But he's acknowledging that it's out there. That's what he's saying. And he's saying it's his opinion. First of all, first of all, first of all, first of all, even if alchemy is true, it could be to find this funny. Who says what the pasuk means? You should know that that these same people said habel comes from the word metabolism is the same idea as transmutation, to change or something. So habel was the nickname. And of the woman of metabolism, 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 metabolism. Yeah, that's where the word comes from. Metab metabolism is an old word from Latin or whatever Greek or wherever it comes from, yeah, which means to trans to change something. Metabolism. Yeah, it comes from exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. So that uh, that saying mehetavel is coming from the same root. It's guesswork. Many of the Christians said, but Salel, the Lachsh of Machshavas, said it's for sure talking about alchemy. Or more than that, refining. it the, says the in the fact. Yeah. You're refining. Okay, go. He had to make the pure gold, so he had to refine it. That I accept, and he would pull it out into the strings. That's that. That's. There's a well. Listen to this. There's a well-known debate between the Rambam and the Ramban. The beginning. Of <laughs> I noticed you didn't translate the last few words. <laughs> you ended it off like, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was the end, period. Fine. When it comes to the people that lived for a thousand years, in the beginning of time, the beginning of the time until the, the first ten generations, people living 900 years. So there's a well-known debate between the Rambam and the Ramban. The Rambam holds it's only those that were mentioned in the Chumash live that long. Everyone lives a hundred years right. or something. The Ramban says, no, why would it be only these people? Do we know that Canaan or Lemech or these people were big tzaddikim? Yeah, but not all the people mentioned were unique. Why would they have been chosen by God to live extra long lives? Says the Ramban, everyone then lived a very long life. So sometime that in the Rambam's defense, what's pshat that only one there was only like one lineage of father to son that lived so long is because only they possessed the secret to the elixir of life and that was the secret of alchemy Holmes and it was alchemy mean the same thing as the as the same from thing. that stone it came from it's, that it's stone all, it's, all, it's, all, it's all the same thing to everything. it's all the same thing no, the philosopher's stone was just a liquid and it's not always the same liquid it's, it's the elements of nature knows. it's the it elements like, of yeah, nature son, that help things reach their George Soros. They're Schlemmers. Okay. Fidel Castro had Any a lot out. of it. We're past everybody. You got to turn him into a believer or are you going to leave him like this? Huh. Well, listen, no, so the dog, listen. How do you explain the Rambam? Hello? Hello? How do you explain the Rambam? K 
Canaan. He lives 900 years. We don't know anything unique about him. Why him out of his whole generation? The Ramban says they weren't. They were regular people. They must have had some secret that was passed down from father to son. This is the, how else it's a Rambam in Merinavuchim. How else to explain the Rambam? Listen, it's not my pshat. I, it's a bit outlandish, but this is what many believe. Those that believe in alchemy will say this is ironclad proof. Anyhow, iron that can turn into, into gold. <laughs> iron was the hardest of the metals to turn into gold. You should anyhow. What do you need to take Anyhow, in the 1500s, alchemy got so big that there was a fellow known as King Rudolf who lived in Prague in the times of the Maharal. King Rudolf at one point had two hundred alchemists working for him. Okay, all right, yeah, fine. The Maharal, apparently, apparently, the Maharal was heavily involved in alchemy. Like the Maharal was involved. Oh, well, that was, he had a she really about Kabbalah Mises. He never made a gun. No, the tradition by us is, the Friedrich Rebbe said he saw the remains, he saw it with his own physical eyes. We'll get into it after, I guess. No, no, I, we can discuss it. I've seen the we sources, but the, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe writes in a letter... Who says that he didn't do it? Which, who says yeah, who that? says for no sure people. he didn't? How could you know for sure never that never existed? There is a whole story. But I'll just tell you that the Rebbe wrote in a letter that he heard from the Friedrich Rebbe. The Friedrich Rebbe saw no, with, his, with his eyes he the was, remains of the guy. in the attic. No, no, so usually the Rebbe says, I asked the Friedrich Rebbe what he saw and he wouldn't tell me. Right. But there is one place the Rebbe wrote, we have a copy of the Rebbe's holy uh, words, Rishimus. where he writes, not in Rishimus, it was a letter, it was a letter, and he writes, it's Rebbe's handwriting, that the Friedrich Rebbe said at one point, he saw the remains of the Galem. So to us, that's the, that, to me, that's the final that's word. You know, but no, also, you should know, 200 he, years ago, he, some, some of the Chesed, Lavram, there are big people, uh, Yosef Shalnatanzen, who all quote that the Maharal made a Galem. 100, 150 years ago, big daily Israel quoted as well. Yeah, not, so not it's just specific. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 Litvish, yeah, they quote it. Was, uh, when you get a chance, you send that letter. Yeah, 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 cause, yeah no, it's online. I, it's online. I, I heard the first way that the Rebbe asked him. Yeah, that, that's what usually the Rebbe quoted, but in one place he writes. He writes. It's the Rebbe's own handwriting, so there's nothing. The buck stops there. Anyhow, I know all those that deny it. I've seen the, it all. One? The Daka story? that he looked in, in, in the Yeah, no, no, this show. is, this is, I don't think this is related to that. No. It's a different it letter. The same oh. Was it the same idea? Was it Prague and the Alta Shul that he saw the Torah? How many visits did he do? Was it the same one? I don't know if it's the same one. I don't know. Anyway, back, back, back to the ranch. So, there was a fellow by the name of Paracelsus. This is Rudolph, he started saying. Right, right. So, he's a, okay, there's a Rudolph. So, Rudolph, in the 1580s, he has 200 alchemists working for him. We know that one night, Rudolf calls in the Maharal, and they were behind closed doors for many, many hours. The Maharal was 16. Maharal was born 1512, passes away 1609. This is in the 1580s. The Maharal spent numerous hours. Who was was also He's named after his Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he also live that long? Yeah, yeah, okay. It's fine. So yeah, I guess they have long longevity in the family. So everyone was wondering, what are, what are they talking about? 
So you should. So the the historian suggests that Rudolf was heavily into alchemy. There's no. He had 200 alchemists. The Maharal was involved in all secret things, alchemy amongst them. They suggest that the Maharal and Rudolf had a long talk about alchemy behind closed doors. But that's just uh, that's just guessing. Chaim Vital at that time we know for a fact. And another big fellow at the time, who was we know for a fact, he writes about it, was one of my most famous, one of the most colorful Jewish personalities ever, the gambling rabbi, Yehuda Arya of Modena. He's in the end of the 50, 50. <laughs> He was lived in, he was the rabbi of Venice during the beginning of the casino age, and he was a major addict. He was the rabbi of the city, he was the rov of the city, the Rosh Hashiva, and he was busy losing money every night in the casinos. So I was No, only if you do that for Parnassa. Yeah. This wasn't for Parnassa. He clearly wasn't. But he actually, <laughs> he actually writes in his autobiography that once it was Yeshiva Asr Betamos on a fast he spent the whole day in the casino. Well, the like rabbi of the movies. city. Not just that. Everyone's got a letter on the, my bed. You remember this? I used to live in Ukraine when he would come to America by my parents' house. He went out one time to go to like one of these bunkers to, to gamble. I come back, there's a letter on my bed from my father. It's a whole long letter, I'm not going to go to the bottom line is for Sachi Kukuga, possibly. So, and, uh, this Yehuda Ari of Medina, when he, he was, when he was young, at the age of 13, he put out a book. In those days, the Chachamim in Italy often put out Sfarim in a way of a dialogue. You know, the Ramchal who wrote Masilis Yesharim, the original Masilis Yesharim, his major, w was written as a dialogue. A dialogue. And the uh, Ramchal is a little bit later. But this Yehuda Arya of Modena, that's where his family started from, the city of Modena, the area, he puts out at 13, he puts out a book. It's a, a dialogue between Eldod and Medod. Mm. One of them is the straight guy, the straight shooter, doesn't do anything wrong. And the other guy is a major gambler. And they're debating between each other if gambling is really a way of life. And each one defends their position. But he ends off the book. The purpose of the book is to prove Eldot's Taina that gambling is not the way of life. But ultimately he became a major gambler. But he, he was a comedian. He worked in the, in the theater that he would write plays. This is the rabbi of the city. He directed plays because the shul didn't pay him. He's a fascinating fellow. He wrote lots of Sfarim and unbelievable and he wrote an autobiography which is one of the most interesting reads you'll ever find Chaye Yehuda and he writes about his life the, the hardships of his life he had three kids three sons one of them died one of them was murdered by thugs and the other one traveled to Brazil and was never heard of again the one that died died during an, an experiment of alchemy you see when you're playing alchemists played with mercury and sulfur right. When you play with mercury and sulfur, you create um, gunpowder. And many alchemists blew themselves up in their own laboratories. So this Yehuda Arya Medina, by the way, he was, he was very superstitious, all primis in Yonim, except for Kabbalah. Chaye Yehuda, you can find it. It's incredible. When it came to Kabbalah, he was against Kabbalah. He felt Kabbalah is a goyish asach. He denied Gilgulim. He was major against Gilgulim until the following story happened. Uh -huh. He was the rabbi, the Chidor writes the story. He was the rabbi of Venice. One night he gets a knock on his door. 
It's a woman, and she says, Rabbi, come, my little baby. Little six-month-old baby, very ill. He says, I ran to the woman's house. I looked at the baby. The baby was mamish between life and death. You know, what am I going to do? The baby was just a couple months old, never said a word in its life. He says, all of a sudden, the baby opened up its mouth and said, Shema Yisrael Hashem Aleikeinu Hashem Echad. The baby turned over and passed away. Yehuda Arya of Medina said, he says about himself, he says, I wasn't a believer, but when you see it, when you see it, you believe it. He says, then I believed in Gilgulim. I realized this soul must have been on planet Earth before and must have learned how to say Shema Yisrael. It's incredible. He says, for years I never believed, but when you see it, when you see it, you believe it. But he was big in alchemy also during this time period of the Renaissance in Italy. And unfortunately, he lost his own son. So you had big Chachomim during the 1500s that got involved in it because it became open in the Christian world as well. In fact, look at the... Look at the other page, look at number eight. Look at number eight for a second. Sure. This is the Chido. The Chido says, If you want to know, the se he's going through the different wisdoms, the seven wisdoms. Physics and science can be part of uh, uh, medicine. I guess chemistry is kind of a mix between medicine and physics. Either way, from there will take you. He refers to alchemia, or number number eight, as a hidden wisdom. Chachmas alchemia hanelemis, the Chidos says. It's an, a hidden wisdom in number eight. I know for a fact, Bebiru Gomer, Mamish a fact, Rabbeinu Chaim Vitalzal, Hayaboki, Bechachmas on his terrace, Chal alchemia, he was a Boki in alchemia, etc. So in the 1500s it was big. You should know that the story of the Goyim is not just discussed by Yidin, it's discussed by Goyim as well. The Goyim are also fascinated. And many Goyim say, obviously Goyim write that Rabbi Loewe of Prague created the Goyim through alchemy. Why do they jump to that conclusion? Because Paracelsus was in, in medicine, one of the most famous doctors that ever lived, and one of the biggest Bale Gaiva that ever lived was Paracelsus. And Paracelsus was a doctor an alchemist and he announced that he was able to create life through the secrets of alchemy and he described how he did it he said you take human zera human seed you leave it in earth for a certain amount of time you mix it with human blood you don't need the egg of a woman he says in my own test tube in my laboratory i was able to create a human being and he publicized it all of his, and this is in the early 1500s, when the Maral was yet a young man. When he publicized it, two things happened. His enemies said, who do you think you are to play God and create people? All the other alchemists started, you know, doing the same thing in their laboratories. No one ever saw this golem that Paracelsus made, but Paracelsus ultimately said, I destroyed it. I destroyed it, he said. And he says the reason. He says, anything made by man can't have a soul. Only God can create a soul. Man can't give a soul. And it's immoral to create an, a being without a soul. And therefore, I dismantled it. So the Goyim quote that and say that the Maharal's Goyim was the same thing. The Goyim couldn't speak. It had no neshama. They link the Maharal's Goyim and they blame it on alchemy. And they link it to the story of Paracelsus, which was only a... A short time, Paracelsus dies in 1540, roughly. The Maral is almost 30 years old at the time. They kind of overlap. A fascinating piece of history. 
Alright, where, where are we going with all oh, sorry, this? Sorry, number five. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, well, you know, alright. So for the time being, we'll end with... We didn't even get to Isaac Newton. We didn't get to no, Isaac no, Newton. And what about this book? We, spoke, we mentioned this book. We mentioned right. the book. That was oh, Avram oh, of Worms, oh, Nicholas Flamel. Okay. Here's the thing. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, yeah, we're okay. So, okay, you know, you know we're, we're going we're gonna to finish. We're going to reach the, the home straight right now. Did Yidin Bechlal believe in alchemy, or is it a Baba Misa? So we saw the Ibn Ezra says, Eilat Divrei Ruach. Chaim Vital, heavily involved. The Maral's involved. Yehuda Arya of Medina is involved. I can tell you other... It's believed, it's believed. It's, yeah, it's believed, very much believed. Rabbi going a little bit later, already in the time of the Enlightenment. You see, the Renaissance was almost the beginning of the Enlightenment movement, although the Enlightenment movement only happens 200, 300 years after the Renaissance. But it was, you know, it was one leading to the next. The Enlightenment movement very much threw off the yoke of religion. Right, right. So you had the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, and then the Enlightenment. And now we're in the, what are we in now in America? I don't know. We're in the, we're in the dawn of the modern age. We're, the, we're in the dawn of Mashiach. We're in, we're in, now we're in the dawn of Mashiach, right? Because of the Mashiach. That's it, the age, exactly. It's the age of... Uh, yeah, the age I, of the I future. The actual term is it's not by chance. Yeah, it's the 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 I am confirmed. I think the actual term is AI. Yeah. I am confirmed. Not bad. Very nice. So you should know, in the Rabbi and Ibishitz, we spoke about Rabbi last week criticizing doctors, right? Rabbi said the doctors are, you know, they get to any inner but he was a big believer in alchemy. He spoke about Yonis it in his drushes. Yonis and Ibishitz was, was a major Kabbalist, amulist. Yonis and Ibishitz was a huge rov in the Rosh Hashiva. I mean, he was a genius in Nigla. But he was into everything. He was a Kabbalist. He was accused by Yaakov Emden to be a Shabzai Tzvinik because of all the amulets, because of all the Kabbalah. He was in alchemy. Funnily enough, Yaakov Emden, the big rationalist, also into alchemy. And in many of his places, he writes about it. Although in one tshuva in Sheilas Yaivitz of Yankov Emden, he says, I really wonder if they ever actually made gold out of it, if they ever... But already a thousand years ago, by the earliest of the Rishonim, there was already a big debate if alchemy has anything going for it, or it's all rubbish. It's a debate between the Chayvus Havavis in number three, and the Kuzari in number five. The Chayvus Havavis Rabbeinu Bechaya, not to be confused with the famous Rabbeinu Bechaya, the, the other, the Kabbalists, with his commentary on Chumash. He was much, the Kabbalist was later, he was a student of the Rashba in the 1300s. The Chavis Havavis is in the 11th century. His name was also Rabbeinu Bechaya, but a couple hundred years before. And he famously discusses in his Shara Betochen that I have over here, the 10 advantages that a Baal Betochen has over the alchemist. And he discusses and he says, if you look at number three for a moment, he says, number three, on the right, Habitech, if those that trust in God, your trust will bring you to remove from your heart all the nyanei ha'olam and just think about the Ebishter and you will be so calm and relaxed, no worries. Similar to the alchemist. The alchemist also has no worries. You know why? Because if he ever needs money, he goes downstairs to his laboratory and he turns some, uh, some metal into gold. Silver into gold, and the bedil, and the lead into silver. Through wisdom and through, uh, through actual um, uh, chemical tricks. Not according to uh, 
What? Is always looking behind his back. No, but he validates. No, 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 no. First, he says, a Baal Betochen has all the miles of the alchemist. And then he says, and if the Baal Betochen is strong in his trust, you're better than the alchemist in ten ways. And he goes to enumerate. For Tchilosom, just read, he says that the alchemist needs certain apparatus to do his work. If he doesn't have them, if he's missing any of those magical ingredients, forget about him. And Are not always really have them. Real? Yeah. He goes on such an arichis. It's out. Yeah. Everyone points to this. Yeah. He's saying it was just. He bring a mushroom. He bring a mushroom. He bring a mushroom. Fine. Where do you see it? Where do you see it? There is no if. If he didn't believe in it, he speaks about it too much. He goes page after page discussing ten differences between the two. If it would just be a mushroom, you would see. No, but if it would. He could have written up. He, he could have written anywhere some signal that this is a mushroom. The fact that he writes it as a fact. You don't buy into this stuff. I don't buy into either. But here it says. Wait, 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 wait. In 1941, there was the famous Harvard experiment that they transmutated small amounts of metals into gold through through nuclear radiation. They did it. They did it. Now you should know the note. Many scientists tell that the original alchemists did change some metals into gold. They didn't mamish become pure gold. The color changed, and you can make them no longer corrode. The Rishonim already discussed that if you have the right fire and different elements, you can heal some of the other metals to become similar enough to gold. Oh, so that could pass as gold. So it passes, you know, it passes as gold. It passes as gold, though, for, 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 it looks like gold, it tastes like gold, it smells like gold, it doesn't corrode like gold. This is very simple. This is, you can take Correct, correct, correct. But the true alchemist felt this is a mysticism. It's Teva Ha'olam that metals grow. That was their belief. And it was mysticism. How do you, and the lack of mysticism, how do you live forever? The, so I'll tell you. The Sephardim, who was a great doctor, writes about Pinchas. Why did Pinchas live forever? The bracha Pinchas was given was peace. Yeah. Yeah, so how yeah, from yeah. that does he live forever? Become Elio. So the Sephardim explains. The Sephardim says, the reason a person dies, why does the body shut down? When there's a lack of harmony between the different elements within the body. And once the signals aren't going right, and that you know, there's a lack of harmony between the organs and the blood vessels, etc. That's what causes different parts of the body to shut down. The Sfarnarajah is black and white. If someone has perfect harmony in his body, he'll live forever. So the Ferish is Sfarnar. So the alchemist will say, and by this Yochanan Alamana that we mentioned, he was in touch with the Sfarnar. You know, so these were all these, these Chachamim all holding hands together. So if you had the philosopher's stone, which can help hold a perfect harmonious equal equilibrium within balance, the yeah. the balance within the particles of the body then you'll live and live now, i don't know about forever but for longer definitely a longer a longer life a longer life what about you know living forever a longer life definitely a longer life no here you don't grow old here you don't grow old when Nicholas Flamel and his wife disappeared, there were sightings. Now, I wasn't there, but there's sightings. Now, people said they saw them 30, 40 years later. They hadn't aged a day. And there was some golden tinge <laughs> around the skin. Anyhow, but the Kuzuri... Anyhow, 
Um, let's just look at the Kuzri in number five and number six. The Kuzri is Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. Yehuda Halevi was uh, one of the greatest poets that Yiddishkeit has had and a great philosopher. By the way, the he Fidah, was a, just on Uri's thing, yeah. that the Rebbe gave uh, an example, like Uri said, he's teaching you what you can learn from a soccer player, what you can learn from a chess player. Uri, the Chidog could be saying, what you can learn, assuming, assuming alchemy is true. I understand. There's 10, ten things no, that come no, along. No, 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 no. Why, no we're not like poking dream, fun that why did he believe in it. The dream thing is to be an alchemist. Right, right. It's like, wow, you he's yeah. saying you're greater than the alchemist. You know what, you know, in other words, like this, if alchemy is really false, then we'll learn the Chavis of others that way. But for those of us that want right. to believe that alchemy right. might be true, right. it could go anyway. If it's true, then so then maybe you, really. may, yeah, maybe so. then you can take everything in the chayvus alavos and turn it on its head. If you have that that level of cynicism, to well, he's it's trying to bring a point. He's bringing he's a, a point. point. He's bringing he's a lesson. Learn from even mm-hmm. him. All about right. reading it the way it says. No, but it's not cynicism. What are you saying? He's saying he's he's telling you this guy. Yeah, this guy has 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 a lot of dedication to his craft. If you have Hashem, you don't need dedication to that craft. I don't know. Listen, you know, people people ask me what I do. I tell them I'm an alchemist. A bacher comes to yeshiva. He's like an unpure metal. You know, he has his. And we try and purify him and turn him into gold. Yeah. We live with alchemy. This is the life that we have. Yeah. You know, That's the metal into gold was just one Indian which took the imagination of Christian Europe. Read the Kuzari. But uh, anyway, so just read the Kuzari. So we're going to finish. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. He was a student of the Rif. So you're talking the end of the 11th century in Spain. So this is earlier. Yeah, yeah, the Kuzri, well, the same time as Chavis, uh, roughly the same. Uh, Chavis the same, was the same The 1000s. Yeah, Chavis might have been a little bit older. The Kuzri, what, what just, it's a philosophical safer, why he wrote it just for five seconds. 200 years before this, there was the famous Khazar Kingdom, which is somewhere maybe in Kazakhstan or somewhere there in Russia, where there was a kingdom, and the king... All right, wherever it might be, and the king there brought a Christian scholar, a Muslim scholar, and a Jewish scholar, and there was a big debate, and the Jewish scholar won, and the whole kingdom converted. That is the whatever. Okay, whatever. Anyhow, there's. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what. Well, Yehuda Halevi definitely believed in the story because he, Yehuda Halevi, was 200 years after this alleged episode. This is already a thousand years ago, and Yehuda Halevi wrote a sefer, you know. Describing, so to speak, the conversations that took place between the king and the Chacham. And uh, he called it the Kuzari after that Khazar kingdom. It, they, they are real. Um, they, there's yeah, we know. Chistai Ibn Shaprut, who was in Cordova, sent them letters. Uh, there's historical evidence. There uh, a bunch of the Byzantines, you know, the Romans from like used to rule where Istanbul is now. They, they, had, they married Khazar women who had Jewish names. Jewish and, names. And they sent princesses to marry Khazar Fascinating. Kings, so so the, the women had... Fascinating. Definitely <clears throat> so they even, they even took off our names. Okay. So the Yehuda Halei... Now this is a bit of a hard read. So we're going to try and do this together. He writes in two places. Number five. Yehuda Halei is talking what Emmanuel Shachat loves to say. Only God can tell me how he wants to be served, right? You can't, a, a person, a human being can't decide what a mitzvah is. Only the Abisha can tell us how he wants a mitzvah to be. And that's the idea that Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is discussing at length at this part of the Kuzri. And then he said, We already saw the embarrassment. 
Kol Mishi Shtadu B'dover Ma'advorim Ha'ele Anyone that tried to do these things on their own Mibali Hakimia from alchemy, or Bali Horuchnius, and those that try and reach out to spiritual souls and, and demons. Now, what he's talking about here is giving a muscle. We can't, uh, he says, nature. He says, the Abishta makes things happen. The scientists, as much as they try, they, uh, the Abishta can make, uh, you know, uh, let's see what he says. He says these alchemists try and bring forth bees from uh, calf meat. You ever heard such a thing? This was one of the activities of the alchemists. To bring forth um, flies from wine. This is a little less uh, exotic than turning lead into gold. Oh, yeah. And he says like this. He says the alchemists, all those that tried to play with nature, he says they were not successful. You can't, even if it's a natural way that somehow bees can come and, you know, uh, uh, what are those insects that can be formed from rotting flesh? God makes that happen because he has a perfect recipe. His point over here is you can never make God's recipe even for nature. For sure when it comes to a mitzvah, how could you know what a perfect mitzvah is? Let's just go through this quickly. I'm not a scientist, so I'm sure there are lots of questions you can ask and I won't be able to answer. But he says, I, an alchemist, may somehow be matzliach here and there. It was like a fluke. It was just from a... Uh, yeah. It's almost like if someone's with a woman, oh, I created human life. You know, that's, it's, it's, that science is, was made by God and you're just... Uh, a small chance. tool over there. The Ain La Odom, but you chance well. It's a very hard read. I'm just going to translate. You can try and figure it out on your own. The Ain La Odom, when it comes to creating a child, it's, 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 you're planting the seed, or Ba'adoma, let's say you plant a fruit. If someone, I grow fruit, so a, a major alchemist, you're a farmer. Yeah. You're a farmer. Let's say the earth is waiting for the seed, or the woman's waiting for the seed. Ula hatslachoseh bo, and for his hatslacheh there. Not only waiting, but appropriate. Right, right. The perfect set of... Uh, it, it's almost like he's talking about taking the egg from the woman and the zera from the man and putting them in a, a Petri dish and, and, and growing the them in a laboratory. No, but he says... Right, today we're able to. But, right. But he's, what he's saying is shir ha'arochim. To get the perfect... Um, Atmosphere, the measurements, yeah. to create a human being, and then only God knows how to do that. Okay, so this may be they've kind of figured out today. There's many other things they haven't yet. So to the living nation of the Yidden, for them to have God dwell amongst them, he's talking about making a Mishkan, he's to make a Mishkan. Imagine Hashem wouldn't tell us how to make a house of God. You're going to decide how to make a Mishkan. Only the Abishtah can tell you the exact coordinates, the exact yeah. measurements which makes it a perfect keli to reach its intent. Only God. You have to hear the amounts and all the coordinates from Him. And a person shouldn't become a Chacham in verb with God. Don't think you understand exactly how it works. Ain't Chacham, ain't Tfun, ain't Tzenegad Hashem. 
in front of God there's no wisdom. He's trying to say both mitzvahs, and he's bringing the marshal from nature and Gashmias, only the Abishta can make the perfect recipe for something to work, both Baruchnias and even Begashmias. And, and then the Chochem tells the king, now you see The best thing we can do is just follow the way our parents understood Torah and not for us to try and come up with our new ideas. Look at number six, he said a similar thing. This is later on in the Kuzri. The alchemist made a mistake. He says it again. He says it again. And the Ruchnim, he says, Hakimiya, the alchemist, Choshu, they think, that if you get the perfect temperature of fire, you can manipulate things. You could change things. We know that warmth, things grow in warmth. The baby grows in the uterus of the mother, right? It's, it's very much to do with the temperature and the climate. So if you take the egg out of the mother's womb, together with the man's seed, if you put it in the right climate, you know, the alchemist felt with the perfect heat, you could do anything. You don't even need soil maybe to make things grow. You could do it. I don't know what the word atzomim means over here. Just like natural heat does this. What makes food digest in your body? It's the climate inside the body. And, and the food turns into blood, it turns into flesh, into bones and everything. So that's an alchemic process happening through heat. And the alchemist felt if you have the perfect heat in your laboratory, the perfect climate, you can do these things. But says the Kuzri Vitorchem, they're busy working night, night after night in the laboratory to find the perfect limbsite, to find this type of fire. The couple times they succeeded by happenstance, they think that they worked it all out. Really, they have no idea what they're doing, he says. And they're not going to be able to replicate it. And he said, it's just like if a man's with a woman and you know, he happens to create a baby, right? It's, just, it's not about you. You don't know how. You really have no idea what you're doing what? or how it yeah. works. It's the Abisha that's making it happen. Anyhow, the point of the Kuzri is very clear. Alchemy is Baba Mises. That's know, his it's opinion. Baba as much as don't waste your time trying to, because you're never going to figure it out. He says, Cherpas. Uh, and number one, he says the embarrassment of the alchemist. Oh, saying because Punk, they never succeeded. Because he never succeeded. And when you did succeed, mm. it can't be bum because they, he's admitting they succeeded. But he's saying they did it because it's happenstance and you're not going to be able to replicate it. He doesn't say silver and that's a big metal thing in science. If you can't replicate it, you can't do it. You have no idea what you're doing. It's the nature does. that are on They usually don't have any. I am now They don't hold any water. Can I go make gold right now? According to, um, according to the Chaim Vital, you most definitely could if you if you knew exactly what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, The Maral, Yehuda Arya of Modina, the Yasher Mikandaya, Rabbi Yochanan Alamano. I just don't love it. You just don't believe it. Wait, what's about uh, Isaac Newton? He died. I just don't actively. Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton. After. Years after he passed away, they found Mercury. a million words that he wrote. A million words that he wrote on alchemy. They say he wrote more alchemy than physics. Wow. I, don't know, I saw in one place says he has 10 million words altogether, 1 million alchemy. He had a nephew called Humphrey um, okay. Newton. Humphrey Newton. Humphrey Newton writes that my uncle, I saw many nights, he was breathing his laboratory. He says, for weeks and weeks and weeks, at certain times of the year, the fire would never go out. And he says, 
I know my uncle, I don't know what it was, but he was trying to find something that was almost beyond human reach. At one point in time, it's fascinating, he suffered, um, Isaac Newton suffered memory loss, some type of dementia. He, in, in his middle, like a midlife crisis, he writes letters to his friends where he accuses them of things they never did. And he had insomnia and all these things, which match with mercury, mercury poisoning. poisoning right. Historians say that once they found all of these things, he wrote an alchemy, and his nephew witnessed him nights after night in his, you know, sleepless, busy with his uh, laboratory. He was going through alchemy. And because of all the mercury that he was busy with, he got mercury poisoning, which leads to forgetfulness and all these things. He just had lead poisoning He was an old man. And you shut this off. No, but that was only if they broke. Uh, shkoyach, shkoyach.